Hi, it's Kate Brownfield from ADHDKidsCanThrive.com. My guest today is Jonathan Mooney. He has ADHD and dyslexia. He is a writer, speaker, and do-gooder who did not learn to read until 12 years old. He faced a number of low expectations growing up. He was told he'd flip burgers, be a high school dropout, and end up in jail. Needless to say, those hopeful prophecies did not come to pass. Opposed to being a high school dropout, he became a college graduate from Brown University with an honors degree in English Lit. Instead of flipping burgers, he ended up writing books. The first one, which he wrote at the age of 23 as an undergraduate, is called Learning Outside the Lines. He then went on to write two more books titled The Short Bus, A Journey Beyond Normal, and then he wrote Normal Sucks. Please enjoy our conversation. I think it's really amazing. So just starting with Jonathan's personal story, he graduated from Brown University with honors in English. He has ADHD and is dyslexic. And you've authored two books called The Short Bus, A Journey Beyond Normal, and Learning Outside the Lines. These are really amazing accomplishments for an adult who struggles with attention and learning. And so as a parent of an ADHD child that we're trying to raise in this day and age, I think it would be really insightful to learn like what kind of kid you were. Yeah. Well, n- not the kid that was supposed to go to Brown or, or write three books. <laughs> that's, that's, right. the short, that's the short it's answer. It's a miracle. It's a- you know, I was kind of the, the exact opposite of, of what people think of as the successful student, successful adult. I was the kid that spent a lot of the day chilling out with the janitor in the hallway because I couldn't sit still. I was the kid that, surprise, surprise, had a hard time keeping his mouth shut. So I grew up on a first name basis with Shirley, the receptionist in the principal's office. (laughs) I was the kid for whom the school desk might as well have been a a form of enhanced interrogation that would have made Dick Cheney proud. Like (laughs) that's the, that's the kind of kid I was. I was generally the kid who didn't fit a narrow definition of, of what school was, what a good learner was. And uh, I generally like too many young people who don't uh, fit that narrow definition. I was given the message that I was not different, but deficient. And so, okay, so school didn't go well for you, right? So how did you get through and how did you end up at Brown University after all of that? Like, how is that even possible? Yeah, I appreciate your politeness in in asking that question because many, many people say, you know, what drugs did you take and where can I buy some? So so I appreciate how... How, how subtle you were with with the elephant in the room, which is how the hell does a kid who grew up with the janitor in the hallway graduate from Brown and write his first book while at Brown? So obviously that's a, a, a long journey and a long answer that can be truncated by saying that I had a number of uh, positive educational experiences that kept me in the game. A number of educators. For every uh, one that didn't understand me, I had a few that did, and that's a testament to the power of of teachers 
power of, the power of meaningful adults who believe in students and young people's potential and ability. And I had my mom in my corner, you know, my mom, not a tall woman, you know, she's like 4'11". She has a really high pitched voice, like, like Mickey Mouse, Minnie Mouse. And she curses like a truck driver. And you did not want cursing Minnie Mouse in your face if you were doing wrong by me. But that's where my mom was, you know, from, from the very beginning until the end. And there really isn't an end. She's still a, a core part of my life now. I had an advocate in my corner. And we know from research that young folks with neurodivergence who have cursing Minnie or Mickey Mouse in their corner, those young folks do better. And, and, and that's, that's, that's my story. Yeah. Okay. So are you suggesting your mom was on your side? Obviously, you're not suggesting that you're saying that, but what was that balance? Because you said she was kind of, she would played a positive role or a positive role in your life, obviously, because she's still in your life. How did she, how did you two balance that without you being shaming to you and putting you down and making you feel, I feel like that's the balance for parents. And that's the struggle that parents have, which is to be loving and kind and supportive to their child without like destroying them. Well, you know, my mom, she, she was all about not trying to fix me. So if, if you think about the, the social and cultural context of neurodivergence, for most of human history, the normal brain has been the, the good brain, the right brain the correct brain and states of cognitive experience that deviate from our notions of normal or average are the deficient brain. Something's wrong with that brain. That has a long uh, cultural history, but that general paradigm of different as deficient is deeply entrenched in our language, in our systems of knowledge, like psychology and psychiatry, and in our institutional practices, education being one of those. And all of that gives parents, educators, individuals, the message that they're the problem. And therefore, they should be the, 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 the thing to change or to be fixed. And my mom really rejected that whole deal. And her, her approach was the problem wasn't in me. It was in the, the systems around me. So my mom would you know, say to any teacher who would listen, she would say, if my son doesn't learn the way he's taught, well, you should teach the way he learns. Now, I'll admit that's a that's a paraphrase because yeah. when my mom said it, there there were a bunch of F bombs <laughs> in there that uh, that I that I edited out for polite company. But yeah, but nonetheless, that was my mom's solution to the balancing act that you articulated. She believed that the square peg should not be made to fit the round hole. And it's the context and the environment should, that should change and not the person. Yeah. And that still stands today. So she was a very good advocate for you. She she was the best advocate for me. Yeah, she tried. Yeah. Okay. And then were you suggesting that things changed for you when you went on medication? I was making a, a flippant <laughs> uh, early Monday morning joke about medication, which I'm happy to reflect on. So, okay. You know, you brought it up. So I was just curious oh, yeah. no, if no, no, that no. really is what changed kind of your, 
your no, academic so path. It's cool. We're friends. We can talk about whatever. It's all good. <laughs> so medication had been prescribed to me, encouraged for me on multiple different junctions in my journey for multiple different reasons. Some being on the sort of attention ADD side, some being on the anxiety, depression side, sometimes all of the above. But in full transparency, medication for that whole constellation of issues was not a tool that I used. Was not a tool I used when I was younger because it was something that my mom in particular had reservations about. You know, just to date myself, I'm kind of ground zero of of the sort of Ritalin generation. Like that's when it was first coming on the scene. There were some questions. It was unknown, etc. And then later in my life, my adult life in particular, my my late adolescent life, I, I found that I could 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 manage harness, which are different paradigms, different words reflecting different paradigms, ADD, anxiety, and mood with other strategies. So that's my that's my journey with it. But with that said, certainly in no way anti medication. It's a tool. It's a tool among others. I think we're learning more and more about the neuroscience of divergent attention and the varying different ways to mitigate the challenges of divergent attention, which are real, and and optimize or maximize the strengths, gifts, and talents, which are equally real. And there's a number of different evidence-based strategies that that complement and 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 for some people uh, replace medication as a tool. But I'm all for using as many tools as possible to unleash the potential of neurodivergent human beings. Yeah. Okay. So, Jonathan, you said you used other strategies to get through. So now you have to tell us kind of what strategies you used that worked for you. Yeah. So let's let's, let's parse the strategies into two buckets. Let's talk about, you know, learning, access to learning strategies. I am dyslexic, as you mentioned in your, in the introduction, did not learn to read until I was 12, spell at a third grade level. So there were a whole constellation of, of, of concrete due difference for my learning differences that I brought to the table uh, and, and implemented to be successful academically. I wrote about those in Learning Outside the Lines with my co-author. That was a book written while we were both undergraduates at Brown and really in the trenches, for lack of a better word, trying to navigate higher education with with a capital H and a capital E. You know, it doesn't it doesn't get much more higher education than an Ivy League institution that was not designed for different brains. And so I wrote extensively about the learning side of things there. You can find that, check that out. That's cool. On the on the on the behavior side, executive functioning side, mood side, anxiety, ADD, that whole intertwined ball, a couple of things work for me. And and again, these are mapped to multiple peer-reviewed studies. So one, exercise. You know, if if y'all read one book, there's a book called Spark, like a spark. Oh plug. yes, yes. Yeah. John John Brady, good friend of mine, co-author of Driven to Defra- the Distraction with Ned Hollowell. I mean, that book is is a, a revelation and revolution in how we think about managing divergent attention because he clearly articulates the link between mental well-being 
and physical movement, exercise, et cetera. So that's a big part of my life. Two, uh, uh, diet. We, we know that there are, there are certain triggers for certain brains that bring out the best or don't bring out the best. And, and being cognizant of that is important. Three, mindfulness. You know, I'm, I'm joining y'all today from Santa Monica, California. So don't write me off as like a California hippie, but, but the research is pretty clear that mindful meditation is, is a, is a important intervention for a constellation of things. And lastly, concrete accommodations in the classroom, especially when it came to the ADD stuff. I had teachers who moved away from a sort of sit and get, you know, approach to learning, sit there, be lectured at, receive information to a move and do approach to learning. And it's really that moving and doing that unleashed my, my, my potential in the classroom. Well, that's incredible. And that happened around in high school for you? That they did the moving and doing for you. That happened in 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 fits and starts, to be frank with you, at, okay. in, in very small pockets of my education, both in elementary school with the you know weirdo science guy who who taught you know biology by yes. by by surfing with high school teacher. Not I wish it was teachers. It unfortunately was not. It was a singular teacher who really was committed to project-based learning in a high school setting. But then most systemically, the move and do stuff happened for me in higher education at Brown. That's unique to Brown in part because of Brown's open curriculum, which means that you get to choose your own adventure with your education, no requirements up to you. And also it's culture of educational experimentation that sort of permeates its traditional academic experience. That's where it was most alive for me, but there were pockets throughout my life. And if there's there's one thing to, to do different for kids with ADD, it's to seek out those active learning environments and to build an educational pathway that increases, maximizes the opportunity for active opposed to passive learning. Do most schools do that? I think that's a uh, challenge for parents, right? If you live uh, in larger no. cities, I think you, there's more options, right, for kids. And I think parents, I think you're giving some wise advice, right? If you live in a larger area with choices to take advantage of those school choices, if you can. Because what you're saying is it will benefit your child to be more learn and do versus just sit and be passive. Yeah, passive yeah. learning doesn't really work. Right. And and also obviously if you're you're seeking out an educational environment, that's an important lens. If you have choice in educational environments, that's a, an important criteria. But even if you don't, and I and I know a lot of parents don't, most parents don't have choice or access to multiple different environments. Active learning strategies is are considered a reasonable accommodation in 504 plans. So in the document that many students with ADHD and neurodivergence receive accommodations through, parents can advocate, regardless of their school setting, public school in Des Moines, Iowa, public school in New York City, and everything in between, you can advocate for active learning strategies within your 504 plan. Those can be as sort of quote unquote simple as fidgets, the ability to take breaks, 
during class. And they also can be as forward thinking as project-based assessment and project-based learning modalities uh, opposed to traditional sit and get uh, test-based assessment and learning experiences. Those are your right as a parent, regardless of where you are to advocate for, for your child. Okay. So you grew up and then you became an amazing advocate for for other children and parents who are raising neurodiverse children. And that's kind of where I crossed paths with you several years ago. So can you tell me a little, share with us kind of how you advocate now as an adult? So my, so, so my world is, is, is uh, organized around trying to make impact and create access and inclusion for folks with different brains and bodies. That's kind of my North Star. And so the paths towards that North Star are three, and they are interrelated but separate. So I, I try to advance knowledge and, and storytelling as change as a writer. So uh, I wrote my first book as an undergraduate at Brown. It was published the month after I graduated. It's called Learning Outside the Lines. I wrote a book called The Short Bus, as you mentioned, in 2009. And I wrote a book called Normal Sucks, which came out in uh, 2019. Subtle title, I know. It's my gift to <laughs> dyslexic readers. You can just check out the title and, and you'll get it. So I continued to, to advance, hopefully, uh, polemical, useful, and impactful stories and information as a writer. I then have a whole constellation of social impact ventures that, that I'm a part of and have been a part of over 22 years. I founded my, my first nonprofit, co-founded it at Brown called Eye to Eye. It goes by Eye to Eye National now. It mentors and advocates for kids with learning and attentional differences. National organization run by good friend, first mentor, David Flink. And then I've been a part of, of, of multiple different ventures that look to solve and support different pain points on the neurodiverse journey of thriving. And then I do a whole bunch of uh, public advocacy in the form of, of, of speaking, trying to encourage and challenge institutions, institution of work, institution of higher education, institution of K-12 education, and others to expand their thinking about neurological difference, to challenge the deficit model that really surrounds a lot of neurodivergent humans, to challenge the pathology model that sees neurodivergence as sickness or deficit or disorder, and to really elevate it as an essential part of human diversity, an essential part of human diversity that has challenges. Of course, I get it. I, I live it. <laughs> but also has tremendous gifts and talents that our, our world needs more than ever. And I think, do you think the tide is changing in the educational system? You know, I, I, I think about that question a lot. I gave my first presentation to a group of like third graders in a special education classroom at a school called the uh, Fox Point Elementary School in like 1999. And I've given on average, you know, 20, 30 
sometimes 50 presentations a year for the past 23 years. Just got back from Michigan last night, giving a presentation. And so every time I talk to folks, I feel that we have taken a step forward. And that step forward is in in part defined as recognition of neurodivergence as a as a a a community that has been historically disenfranchised and has a right to inclusion and empowerment and at the same time i i feel like we've we've taken you know a step back or a half step back some days i feel like it's a full step back the stories i still hear and heard yesterday from young people of being marginalized because of a brain difference are heartbreaking and unconscionable for 2023, almost 2024. But that's still happening uh, all around the country in all sorts of schools. And the inflection point that I don't think we've gotten over yet as a society or system is in fundamentally reimagining what it means to learn and and how we operationalize that learning. So as long as we have a narrow set of metrics that schools and teachers are held accountable for at no fault of their own, that define learning as a series of academic tasks and define good behavior as a series of compliance to rules, as long as we have those as our day-to-day in school, real transformative change is going to be hard to come by. Now, I am optimistic that there's a number of educators in public school systems, and I only say public school because that's where most children go, and that's the system that has the most potential to impact large number of neurodivergent humans. There are a number of, of bold, courageous, visionary educators, principals, support staff, and everything in between that are working to to evolve education around the notion of universal design and neurodiversity, not just for the neurodivergent kids, but for all young folks. And that's something I'm optimistic about. But we're still in the place where we're on the precipice. And to get over that precipice will require us collectively advocating for a a new way of learning, for a new way of working, and and ultimately for a new way of thinking about neurodivergence, not as a deficient deficiency, but as a difference that has something to contribute to the world. Okay. So Jonathan, I believe you're a father now, right? So I'm curious how like your advocacy and your own journey through school and now as a parent kind of how have you changed and evolved now that you're raising your own children? Yeah, I'm a father. I'm a father of three, a 16 year old, a 14 year old, and a 12 year old. And how's it going with the teenagers? <laughs> yeah, te- <laughs> you know my the, my teenagers are, are 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 really you know phenomenal human beings as they all are, and I think teenagers get a bad rap, though it can be. A tumultuous journey as as a as a parent to 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 walk walk that last mile of road together as they get ready to launch their own life, but 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 it's 
but it's going well. And I, and I, and I think what ha- has been most illuminating for me and also a, a affirming of some ideas that I held in the abstract, but, but my journey as a parent have made them concrete is the social forces that are outside of family control that are bearing down on our children, our, our adolescents, my children, your children, and how we have such an individualistic culture in which the message of the self-help books, mine included, by the way, not, not to disparage folks trying to give people a guide and tools to parent and, and thrive, but we have such an individual culture it's all on us. You, you is you 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 gotta carry this, walk this road, and and the truth is that there are such powerful social dynamics that can only be addressed through collective action and through systemic change to have more young folks thrive. Because we have a, we're in the midst of a youth well-being crisis right now, and 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 that crisis is of of generational proportion, and it's and and it's something that we won't s- solve as individual parents, right? So for me, that recognition is is frightening. It's and you feel that now as a parent. I feel that as more a parent. Than, I feel yeah, it as a parent very much. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and what I do with that, that recognition and that fear is try to dedicate my energy to some, some change that, that, that transcends my individual kids. So, you know, our children have been completely exploited by Meta and a set of, of multinational social media companies. Yeah. You think? Hold on. (laughs) <laughs> not, 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 and that's not just opinion. That's not my opinion, John. No, I know. Hey, my your- kids were on social media ten years ago, and I saw it all go down. And I'm thrilled. Ten years later, now we're starting to speak about it as adults that it's not right. Well, and it so th- it's not my opinion. It's not just your opinion. It, it, it honestly is the opinion of of forty attorneys generals from 40 different states who just launched a class action lawsuit against uh, Meta, Snap, TikTok for uh, material mental health harm to children. Yeah. So we did, we just have to pause on the magnitude of that for a second. That's not some, you know, Luddite <laughs> anti-tech person, blah, blah, blah. That's 40 states are suing these countries, uh, these companies, company, yeah, with with evidence of material mental health harm that directly correlates to the rise of depression, anxiety, and self harm among teens. Yeah, this is our kind of tobacco moment because what the attorneys generals have shown is that Meta, in particular, and others knew all along. Yep. The harm it was doing to children. And so if anyone's listening and is curious, the, the, the 40 attorneys generals released their discovery, which is their evidence that they will proceed with in court. They released it online. So you can read all of it mm-hmm. and, and you can read about 
the the egregious disregard and frankly criminal disregard these multi-billion dollar companies had for our children. And so when I talk about these social forces, that's kind of what I'm what I'm talking about. And so the path forward is to be a part of something bigger than yourself, you know, to 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 contribute to the multiple efforts that are looking to rein in that force. There are other forces too. To participate in advocacy at the school level for uh, universal design, which is not a strategy that's just about the kid who struggles in school. It's a strategy that is for all kids to 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 benefit all learners. So that's how I manage it as a as a parent, recognizing the the social forces and and trying to contribute in whatever way I can to some collective change. Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, so Jonathan, as we wrap up, what would be your words of wisdom for parents? raising in the middle of it raising their own ADHD kids there there's a there's a there's a bright light at the end of the tunnel there really is it may not feel that way right now i know that my story is one example of that bright light my story is 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 not unique and and that's something that you should know Maybe it's unique on the round writing stuff, but when it comes to neurodivergent thriving, more and more young folks are transcending the marginalization that they experience and thriving in life. And so there's hope for, for your child, e- even when it feels hopeless. So hold on to that. My other advice is put aside what they can't do. There's so much focus on can't sit still, can't do their homework, can't find their keys, can't, can't, can't. And that's demoralizing. Focus instead on what they can do because neurodivergent learners can do so much. They can do so much, not despite their their neurodivergence, but because of their neurodivergence. Understand that these are linked, that uh, ADD and a whole constellation of brain differences have survived in the human genome for millennia because they add value to our communities, to our world. Without ADD, there would be no California, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so focus on uh, your kids' strengths, gifts, and talents. Uh, Mitigate their weaknesses with teams, technology, and help, and help them build an education, a pathway, and ultimately a life that's all about what they can do. Great, beautiful. 